Welcome back to the original Gangsters podcast. I am your host, Scott Bernstein, along with my partner in crime, the doctor, Jimmy Bougelotto. Buongiorno. Hey, now. <laughs> so, uh, we are going to do a deep dive uh, into the Chicago Mafia uh, in this episode, specifically uh, focusing on deceased Chicago godfather, John Johnny No-No's DeFranzo, uh, who died a couple years ago, um, led the Chicago mob uh, from about the early 90s, 91, 92-ish, until uh, 2000, um, I believe he died in 18. Um, And he was a true... Um, outlier in a lot of ways. Uh, he was kind of, not kind of, he was one of the first incarnations of this boardroom gangster who was just as savvy negotiating legitimate business deals as he was uh, running rackets on the street. Um, he had a pretty long tenure uh, both as a uh, a capo regime and a underboss and then a godfather. Uh, the length of that tenure and the fact that he had very few brushes with the law uh, have raised some questions that we're going to get into um, related to his legacy. But all things being even and, uh, you know, pound for pound, Johnny No-Nos DeFranzo was one of the most powerful, respected, revered, organized crime figures uh, in America for a good 40-plus years. And he was a, he's a real legend uh, in, in the Midwest mob uh, landscape. Uh, but there are some red flags when you do kind of a forensic analysis of his ability to avoid indictments and incarceration. Uh, There are people that are well-sourced that have theorized that John DeFranzo might have been one of the FBI's highest ranking confidential informants of all time. And they point to one specific situation for quote unquote proof or uh, a, a, a very influential argument towards the belief that he, he was a CI. Um, and that would be the fact that he avoided any and all ensnarement in the epic Operation Family Secrets trial, which uh, went down in 2007. Uh, the indictment hit in, I should say, the, the indictment, Operation Family Secrets, the indictment hit in the spring of 05. The trial was in the summer and fall of 07, and it brought a uh, wrecking ball through the upper echelons of the Chicago mob, uh, charged 18 separate murders dating back 30 years. The headlining homicides 
in uh, in this ginormous racketeering case were the Spilatro brothers' murder, murders, uh, which were depicted in the film Casino with Joe Pesci uh, playing a character based on Tony Spilatro, who was the Chicago mob's uh, overseer in Las Vegas, who had uh, become quite a bit of a renegade and was murdered. Uh, the star witness in Operation Family Secrets was a Chicago mob soldier and hitman named Nicky Slim Calabrese. And Nicky Slim uh, got on the witness stand and was emphatic that uh, No-Nose DeFranzo wasn't just present at the Spilato Brothers' murder uh, murders, which took place in June of 1986 in the basement of a Chicago, uh, suburban Chicago residence in Bensonville, uh, right outside of the city limits, uh, or within this kind of the south side of the city. It's kind of like a, uh, a little enclave, uh, that, that had a lot of, uh, uh, residents that were, were organized crime connected at the time. Um, not that he, that he wasn't only present for the murders, but that he had actually coordinated the entire conspiracy, uh, to kidnap and murder uh, Tony the Ant Spilatro and his younger brother, Mickey. And DeFranzo was never called on the carpet by the federal government. He was never indicted in that case, despite other members of that conspiracy being uh, in, in that courtroom when, when Nikki Calabrese hit the stand. Guys that uh, were, I guess, pawns in the chess game that, you believe Nikki Slim Calabrese that Johnny DeFranzo was playing. Johnny DeFranzo was putting all the pieces in place for this very high, uh, high uh, priority double homicide, uh, helped set it up, helped carry it out. And when the case is finally cracked and those murders are finally brought to justice, no nose DeFranzo is not included in the indictment. There were a, uh, a number of rumors swirling in the years after Family Secrets, and you got to, uh, you know, do the timeline here. Uh, Johnny DeFranzo was alive for another 11 years after uh, the Family Secrets case came to an end. And there were rumors that there was going to be a quote-unquote uh, Family Secrets 2 in the same way there was a straw man one and two, which was the big uh, casino skimming case involving the Chicago mob and other Midwest families in the uh, early 80s. There was straw man one, which came down in 82, and then there was straw man two, which came down in 85, I think. And we did an episode on that. Right, for Gary listeners. Jenkins. Yeah, it's actually in our top ten now. It's like six or seven, so it's rising up the charts. So if you haven't heard that yet. Six Check or seven, out. you mean in our top ten? Top ten, yeah. It's, yeah. it's and and it's it's good context for like this conversation. So if if you haven't listened to it yet, check it out. So, uh, needless to be said, there was not a family secrets too. So John DeFranzo died three years ago with a lot of these questions swirling, and uh, both myself and the Chicago Sun Times and Chicago Tribune uh, immediately put in a Freedom of Information Act request. Uh, to get a hold of John DeFranzo's FBI file. And uh, that request was finally filled last week. 
and myself and the two uh, major Chicago newspapers got our hands on uh, about 400 pages of uh, DeFranzo's FBI file and just uh, crickets. There is, uh, uh, it's a big nothing burger when we're talking about any information or insight into why he was not ever brought up on charges in the Spilatro brothers. Do they even homicides. talk about the Spilatro homicide in the files at all? Yes. Okay. They do. In, but they talk about it in context of informants telling the FBI that one Spilatro is murdered, that DeFranzo will take over for oh. Spilatro in Las Vegas. Right. Which did not turn out to be true. Right. Someone else. There uh, was spe- uh, the, the Don Angelini yeah, yeah. and uh, Don, uh, Don Angelini and Dom Cortina. And then uh, another guy, Chris Petty, who was a, a Greek guy. Uh, came in and, and handled all of Chicago's affairs there. So that after after the Spilatro was killed in '86. So there's no insight there. Then that that that's nothing. No, that was the only time Spilatro uh, came up in the file, or at least in the parts of the file that that were not redacted that you could read. Um, so Jimmy, why don't you give us some thoughts, and then then maybe we'll we'll start we'll go back uh, to go forward and, and give a little uh, a, a quick synopsis on on who uh, No Nose DeFranzo was. Yeah, I mean, let me, I'll start like macro, and then and then let me ask you some questions at the micro level. So macro level, again, we, we've established this in other episodes. Um, Whitey Bulger, El Chapo, some of the biggest gangsters that you could talk about. It turns out that they were uh, at one point or the other sharing information with the feds, or the feds were giving them information. So the the idea that a high ranking gangster could be doing this is not implausible at all, right? Now, that's just at a, a macro level. For someone who's thinking, oh, no way, a mobster would never snitch. Like, come on. Like, we we know, like, Omerta, right? Doesn't <laughs> it's, really it's in mean the movies, much. Right. Um, and even in the movies, it's not there, too, either. Like, Frank Pantangeli, right? Right. <laughs> so, but anyhow, um, uh, I've been doing a little research on this, and I admit, you know, you know a lot more about the outfit than I do. Um, Apparently there was another guy who was not indicted and but maybe you could tell me more about this yeah, Louis, Louis Marino. Marino but yeah see he was already incarcerated well, though Lu- Yeah Louis Marino was already incarcerated at that time Yeah um and I'm not dismissing the fact that Louis Marino might have got away with murder and got to live his last he's dead now too he, he lived about I think 5 6 years after he got out of prison um but Louis Marino, again, was was a pawn on the chessboard. The chess player, the one that was moving the pawns all around, yeah. the one that was setting up the homicide. And it wasn't like, a, you know, this happens over a day. This is like, yeah. this is a, a two, probably a two, three, four, five month conspiracy yeah. that according to a very, very uh, reliable uh, witness in the fact that his testimony convicted a ton of people, Nick Calabrese, he says he was involved in, con- in the conspiracy. He was recruited into the conspiracy by Johnny No-Nose DeFranzo. And, and No-Nose DeFranzo was calling all the shots in coordinating details and carrying out the Spilatro brothers' murder. So, and... Murders, I keep on... And, and that that makes sense that it would take that long just for some context because... Tony Spilatro is big game, 
right? Yeah. They're hunting for big game. Yeah. He's a high-ranking guy. He's a dangerous guy. And he knew, a- <laughs> and he, and he, knew he was on the outs with people, <laughs> right. so he was right. being real careful. Yeah. Um, right. You know, uh, he had his guard up. Yeah. And uh, was was facing just a uh, an uphill battle with both his bosses and the mob and with the the legal system because he was yeah. under fire. I think he was in I think he was under indictment in like three or four different cases when he uh was killed. Yeah. So so that would make sense that it would be an elaborate conspiracy to to pull this and off. And if you saw the movie, if you have that point of reference, uh he, it was very accurate Joe Pesci's performance and Tony Spilato's Rain in in Las Vegas just went completely off the rails. Um, yeah, Spilatro just went off the reservation, became a rogue. Cocaine, uh, I think. He right? Started to abuse cocaine, which is actually a, a a piece of the story that doesn't really make that much. It doesn't make make its way into the narrative that much. But I've always said that was a big factor here. Yeah, they imply it in right. the film, yeah. but they more talk about his crew doing blow right. than him doing blow. Right. But I've heard from people within his crew that a lot of his uh, lapses in judgment and crazy behavior, uh, increasingly unstable yeah. uh, uh, demeanor was tied to an, an increasing cocaine habit. Yeah, it makes sense. And uh, then he started sleeping with the wife oh, yeah. of a very prominent uh, outfit associate who by the way was also a confidential informant yeah came out later that frank lefty rosenthal uh who in the movie was portrayed by robert de niro as ace rothstein but ace rothstein was really lefty rosenthal right. that that character was a confidential informant the whole time yeah and he and he was he was going back decades right right Wasn't that what, right right um, so spilatro had upset so many people and so it was a it was high priority, and it, 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 there's also something of a unicorn nature here in my book, uh, you know, in my uh, from my research. The, the entire Chicago Mafia's administration at that time, sans Tony Accardo, who's who was the the kind of Wizard of Oz, yeah, uh, behind the curtain, boss emeritus, <laughs> yeah, outside of Accardo, every. M- Every sitting member of the Chicago mob administration wanted to be present to watch the Spilato brothers beaten, stomped, and strangled to death. Wow. It was like a, uh, uh, like a, a pay-per-view event. Yeah. Uh, where they had Sam Carlisi, um, Joe Ferriola, uh, Angela LaPetra, you know, the, the major players were present. Uh, initially to to lower Tony's guard when he walked in the uh, yeah. house, believing this was a, a top secret outfit get together. Yeah. Um, but in reality it was it was an execution that the uh the top outfit bosses, the top outfit bosses wanted to witness. So big game is like a good analogy for yeah. <laughs> like a sport right. almost. Uh trophy uh hunting. And DeFranzo was um uh Black Sam Carlisi's guy, and so DeFranzo was a captain at this point, right? Uh, but it's even though he was, I shouldn't say he was Carlisi's guy. He was he was Jackie Cerrone's guy who eventually got p- 
put with Carlisi, but him and Carlisi didn't get along. It's uh, you know, we can kind of get into inside baseball, uh, Chicago yeah. mob politics there. I don't want to go too far down sure. the rabbit hole. Sure. But uh, yeah, he was a capo regime uh, from the '70s forward. Jackie Cerrone, Jackie the Lackey, um, who had become the underboss when he was elevated to underboss in the '70s. He had been the Elmwood Park capo. He uh, promoted his protege, DeFranzo, to capo regime of Elmwood Park. So uh, he was a capo from, let's say, the mid-70s um, into the late 80s when he was eventually um, promoted to underboss. So who would have given him the contract, the administration? Ferriola and Carlisi. Joe Ferriola, who at the time was the boss of the Chicago yeah. mob, um, had a short reign. I think he only uh, was on top for about three years. He died of uh, uh, on the on the operating table, actually getting a heart transplant. Um, Would Accardo have to sign off on that, or was he, yes? I he... believe look, I've I've heard from people that said that Accardo signed off on on the Spilato brothers' murder. Yeah, that's interesting. So um, murders, I keep on yeah, getting to pluralize. Yeah, right. His um, so let let me ask you something again, sort of macro here. Um, we you mentioned Frank Lefty Rosenthal that. The fact that he was an informant was disclosed in his... After he died. After he died, right. Which so, made everyone like... of Like people might like myself and the, yeah. the reporters in Chicago thought that we'd be able to find out the same thing about <laughs> right. De, DeFranzo that we found out about right. Rosenthal because in Rosenthal's file, there was unredacted material outing him as a... Uh, informant, not so when it comes to DeFranzo's uh, FBI file, which came out last week. So just for the average listener there, out there, what if, I mean, so the FBI can... They can choose not to tell us. They, you know, and there's a, you know, uh, there's some inside baseball and some nuance to law enforcement and intelligence gathering and uh, cooperators. So there, there's a difference between a CI and a CW. Yeah. Confidential witness is a CW. A CI is a confidential informant. Now, you can be a confidential witness and a confidential informant. But you could also be a confidential informant who isn't a confidential witness. So that would be called a quote-unquote dry snitch. So there's a confidential witness who is a witness. They're going to take the witness stand and right. testify to X, Y, and Z. Confidential informant could be opened by the FBI and, and maintained and operated for 50 years, but would never, but won't, won't never take the stand. That's like Scarpa. Right. Scarpa. Um, Bolger would have been right. He, he would right. have never. Te- right. So they're dry, meaning they don't have to jump into the water into the deep end of the pool right. and get and get wet with their with their cooperation. Right. They can stay on the sidelines, stay stay on the beach. Yeah. So I think you all you were like anticipating my question. The the FBI can release documents the way they want to. They don't have to declassify everything. And, and then there's some order of operation here that I think people have to understand. Maybe not uh, that maybe that's the wrong phrase. There's some um Protocol, I should say. Mm-hmm. There's some protocol within federal government and within law enforcement, I guess, that, that you should understand, but especially at the highest level of uh, federal law enforcement and uh, getting 
information from people uh, on the street. So, you know, when you're open as a confidential informant, the only people that are supposed to know that you're a confidential informant is your handler, meaning one FBI agent, and then the, supervisor. the, the SAC. Yeah. The, the, the agent in charge. Right. Special agent in charge. Um, a, actually, the a, they call him the ASAC, Assistant Special Agent in Charge. Um, so you're just known as a number. Like when, you're, when they're having meet, when the FBI is having intelligence meetings and they're talking about, like just for instance, let's just say Operation uh, Family Secrets, yeah. which was a case that was built over uh, about, a, I think they opened it in 98 and the indictment came down in 05. So it was a seven-year investigation. So when they're having their, let's say, their, their morning Friday meeting, meeting to talk about, or their morning Monday meeting to talk about what, you know, what they've been doing on the street, the agent that's handling, let's just play the game and say DeFranzo was a, was a CI. The agent that would have been handling DeFranzo wouldn't be saying at the meeting, oh, John DeFranzo told us yeah. this. He'd be saying CI26B34 right. told us this. Right. And so there's, you know, if he was a CI, only a very small amount of people, not more than two or three people would even know that, if that. So when, when we request Freedom of Information Act request and the FBI is determining what can be declassified and what cannot be, in this specific case, they have to consult with the Chicago field office. I'm just wondering, because when you talk about standing operating procedure, like, that, that's interesting. Like, so I never thought about, because I, 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 re I request Freedom of Information Acts. I mean, it, through, I file FOIA requests all the time, but I never actually thought about you the, file, cha the you, chain of command. Yeah, you, like, file them through, you file it through Washington. Right. If you're doing it through the, right. for the federal government. But, who, but so. Well, not necessarily. I filed stuff through. Uh, like a local field office? Through local field offices before. Sometimes they divert me. Yeah, I've always done to it Washington. To, to D.C. But So I was just thinking, like, if I'm requesting something on a guy who died who was a Chicago outfit guy, Washington, D.C., where are they going for that information? They're going to go to the Chicago field office, right? right. Is that where that's all? Yeah, in, in, their, uh, you know, in their file room, in their archives. And who has say over, like, like, you know what I'm saying? Like who who, who decides what's redacted and yes, what's not? Right, right. What's considered uh, sensitive information or yes. information that that could compromise compromise other, right. other operations today or other right. people? Yeah. I I don't know. Yeah. I, I'm guessing there's a some type of uh, vetting yeah. process that uh, there are agents that are assigned like that's their job. Yeah. To go through files that are being requested yeah. and decide what can and cannot be shared. Yeah, and in my experience, the threshold to to keep something classified is very low. Yes. Like the slightest thing right. th they'll use. I mean, because you and I have requested shit on guys who are active in the 40s. Right. And they still classify. Or the, or they give you something and it's all redacted. <laughs> yeah, it's all redacted. It's like, who are you protecting? Well, 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 what investigation are you protecting from the 40s? Spilatro's file is a perfect example. I, I uh, Shameless promotion here. My second book I wrote, Family Affair, yeah. Greed, Treachery, and Betrayal in the Chicago Mafia, deals with the real story behind the movie Casino. And uh, part of my research was I got a FOIA request on Tony Spilatro's uh, FBI file, and I got 800 pages, and, you know, 700 of them were redacted. <laughs>
Right, right, and that's and that's even a little bit more recent. But but, but that was I'm talking was about in, guys in the 30s and 40s. But this was they too, okay, but I was doing this for you, let's say in 2010. Yeah, and he, and he had been, been murdered in '86. <laughs> right, right, right. So the, the threshold is pretty low for them to uh, block information. So um, that what I'm saying is, like that doesn't help us figure out whether or not the FBI has reason to protect. Uh, this information, like, because um, they could block it for anything. Because we're saying, okay, well, if they're not going to declassify it, that's suspicious. Well, not necessarily, because they 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 block all sorts of information for reasons that that are unclear. What I will say emphatically is that there is no there's no rhyme or reason that if Nick Calabrese is being deemed a reliable witness by the U.S. Attorney's Office, by the FBI, by Judge Zagel, who was the, the who oversaw the trial. And it was the most important trial related to organized crime in the history of that city, in the history of Chicago. It, it, there's, there's no reason that John DeFranzo isn't at that defense table other than He's being protected in some way, shape, or form by the federal government. And I, I'm not saying he's an FBI informant. I'm saying it makes no sense that if you're going to convict all those people on Nick Calabrese's testimony, if you're, going to, if you're going to stand him up as the most important witness in the history of the, the FBI's war against the Chicago mafia dating back to Capone, yeah, and you're gonna you're gonna take ninety nine point nine percent of what he says and prosecute it to the hilt, but you're gonna leave possibly the biggest cake crumb, you know the the that's that's the that's the brass ring. Johnny DeFranzo's the boss. Yeah, who who was the highest? Who was the big fish in that? Was it Lombardo? Who was the Lombardo biggest? and Marcello? Marcello, uh, Jimmy, uh, little Jimmy Marcello. Uh, was the acting boss. Lombardo was the consigliere. Joey, the clown Lombardo. They were both indicted in it. Uh, Frankie Breeze, Frank Calabrese, the brother of, of Nicky Slim, um, was another one of the uh, headlining defendants. He was uh, not in Chicago, they have crew bosses and, and capos. So he was a, a crew boss of a loan sharking uh, clique within the South Side um, crew. So he, he wasn't quite a cop regime, but he was bigger than a soldier. Yeah, and Chicago does man. things yeah, different. Yeah, Frank Calabrese. Um, so the fact that they prosecuted a number of high-ranking guys, it's at the very least very curious. Well, you're pro- and, you're prosecuting <laughs> Marcello. Well, and you're prosecuting Marcello, who is at that time, if you believe the FBI, if you believe the Chicago Crime Commission, if you believe my sources, Marcello was acting boss on behalf of DeFranzo. Yeah. And Marcello's being indicted yeah. and convicted of the Spilatro brothers' murders. Yeah. And right now, where's Jimmy Marcello? Jimmy Marcello's in Supermax right now. Joey Lombardo died in Supermax. Yeah. And 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 that means they consider you the worst of the worst. Yeah. And the person that was pulling all the strings, puppeteering this whole thing, gets off scot-free, it, it, it makes no sense. 
So one other, that, so that, that sort of macro stuff at the micro level, let's see what you think about this. The, the argument that the FBI actually, maybe this, cause you know, the case better than anyone. So maybe this is this, this question, you know, if, if it, if it doesn't make sense at all, you know, call it out that the FBI's confidence in Calabrese is not as high as we would think that they were sort of gambling and that they were afraid to put DeFranzo in that list to indict him as well. His case in particular could lead to some unraveling of an undermining of Calabrese testimony that he's not the most reliable. I mean, I suppose you could make that argument, but there's a thousand holes in it. Yeah. I mean, what do you mean? Nick, Cal- Nick Calabrese proved to be the most reliable. They convicted everybody on his testimony. Yeah. He didn't prove to be unreliable. Yeah, at least, the, yeah, in court of law, right? He, right. He was, yeah, okay. I mean, so they, that, they, so- caught, they caught him in a, a one minor, I considered a mistake. Other people considered it that he was lying, that he named, you know, the, you got to think that the, he's taken the stand in 2007. It had happened 20 years ago. There's literally like 15 people in the house when this happened. Yeah. And he, he got 14 of the 15 right. And he named a guy that wasn't there as being there, but I think that can just be your yeah. you misremembered. Sure. My point is that's the only dent right. that you could make in Nick Calabrese's testimony, that he named uh, Rocco Infelice as being part of the conspiracy when we know Rocco Felice had some airtight alibi and wasn't anywhere near the, the Spilatro brothers' uh, hit. So if, if he's such a fragile witness... But I don't think he's a fragile. I'm saying I don't no, think he's a fragile witness. No, I'm saying that for the for the argument that DeFranzo is not an informant, the the argument that they didn't want to indict DeFranzo because that might expose Calabrese as not that reliable of an informant, which would undermine the rest of their case. But why? But just play play that out. How would it expose Calabrese as not a reliable informant? I mean, I'm, I'm asking yeah, you to I don't ar- know. argue it. Yeah, I don't know. I mean, I'm just reading this online. <laughs> you're reading what? What's, what you're reading what online? I don't, I don't know. So this is from an online forum. I, I don't know how, how he could have proven Calabrese unreliable. I mean, the, it, it was enough for the jury to convict everybody that they had put up there uh, in charge with the Spilatro brother murders were convicted on Calabrese's testimony. You'd have a point, or a person making that argument might have a point if you know, the, uh, it, it wasn't. Uh, it 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 hadn't have been a slam dunk. The if if there had been people that had been charged for the Splatter brothers' murder who were acquitted, yeah, and other right. people were convicted, but some were acquitted. But everybody that was charged with it was yeah. acquitted based on Nick Calabrese's testimony. Yeah. So it, it the logic there doesn't seem to doesn't seem to make sense. Yeah, um, I don't. I don't re- I what don't. about what about the argument that? This is all I'm getting from from an online forum, but um, just to see, you know, just to see what what your response is. That if he was an informant, why did his brother and some of his top guys get prosecuted? Again, I, this this forum you're you're, you're uh, relying on isn't very reliable. What do you mean, Peter Franzo didn't get convicted of anything? Oh, Peter Franzo. I mean, has he? Did Peter Franzo have? 
some arrests in his history, yeah, so did John DeFranzo. But Pete DeFranzo didn't do any major prison time in the last 30, 40 years of his career, and he died last year of COVID. So that, it, it, actually play, it actually plays in to the argument that he is an informant and that he was having the government look out for his brother. Yeah, so, so these are pretty flimsy. Well, it's just, it's, uh, it's false. It's false yeah. advertising. Pete DeFranzo was almost as, was equally as lucky as his brother. Neither of them were really convicted of anything major. I'm pretty certain that Pete DeFranzo did not do any major prison time in the last, uh, he did some time like in the 60s. He didn't do any time in the, uh, you know, during his brother's run. And he, and he was a greedy Pete DeFranzo was his brother's underboss and acting boss. And he was a major player too. He, now, let's be cl- I want to be very clear. Greedy Petey was not implicated in the Splatter Brothers murder. So I'm yeah. not saying that yeah. Pete DeFranzo got off scot-free So Splatter Brothers. Just murder. to keep, keep everything straight here, we still have no proof that he was an informant. But some of these arguments that are saying, well, yeah, this is pretty weak to say he's an informant, those are very flimsy or even just... No, the, argue, the, argue, the argument for him being a confidential informant is incredibly strong. I mean, I, I, don't, I don't know if that's something that you can even debate right now. So at least the circumstantial uh, right. evidence. I'm saying you couldn't debate that the argument's strong. You could take the devil's advocate position and debate that he's not. I'm just saying I don't think you could deny that the argument that he was yeah. is a pretty strong argument. Yeah. How do you think that would have gone down? I know we're getting hyper-speculative here, but would they have had him on something, had something? It, you know what I mean? Like, I wonder how that relationship would have developed. I, I know I we're think, being hyper-speculative I here, but think, assuming that, that, that this is the way it I think that went the down. majority of information that he was feeding the government had nothing to do with organized crime, or if not a majority, a big chunk. I think they were using him because he was so juiced in to the, oh, the white-collar white yeah. legitimate world, yeah. I think they were using him to make uh, busts against corrupt doctors and politicians and judges and police officers and uh, businessmen. And, you know, I'm not saying he didn't give information or potentially if he, had, if he was a CI, didn't give information on, on uh, mob stuff, but... So if if a person is prosecuted, you're the you you have the law degree here. I know you didn't practice, but if if you're representing a client and there's information about your client from a CI, how much access do you have to what that person was saying and and even identifying that person if you're the attorney? You don't. You don't. And the jury doesn't have a right. No one has you can't convict someone based on right. it has information to, from a confidential Right, it can only corroborate other right. Right. witnesses. Right. You, I mean, the jury at a, at a trial is never going to hear what a confidential informant said. Yeah. They, they use what the confidential informant said to get warrants to build an indictment, but sure. they're, they're not being presented in front of the jury to so if you, if be you're, vetted. If you're a wise guy like this, would you say it's pretty low risk to... Let, let's just assume. I'd say if you're a smart, wise guy, you're a confidential informant. <laughs> I mean, so, I re- honestly, yeah, I say yeah, that. Leave, I, let's leave the anthropology out here. Yeah. Leave, leave the code and like all that, but just as like, just let's let's stick to like rational choice theory. Theory here, like, uh, um, it's pretty low risk to be if you can guarantee that you're never going to have to take the witness stand, right? And right. you can kind of uh, massage 
or butter up in some ways the people that are coming after you. So even if you do take a pinch, maybe it's a lesser pinch and or maybe, you know, you're, you're going to be getting, you know, fringe benefits maybe from your dry cooperation. You'd be getting preferential treatment from your dry cooperation. Yeah. Like not being indicted for yeah. <laughs> murder conspiracy. <Right. laughs> or uh, let's, but let's also talk about how, no knows DeFranzo's career as a Don got off the ground because, again, the only reason he had a run as a godfather was because he got a major case thrown out. Yeah. He, did a, he was looking at a, a, you can maybe look it up. Uh, I don't, I'm not sure what the, the sentence was, but he was looking at a, a pretty significant sentence that he was convicted of uh, out of California back right. in 93. Uh, of extorting uh, Native American like yeah. bingo, yeah, right. Uh, right, parlors or whatever, right. And I, um, I think it was a twenty-five year sentence. Yeah, and he got sprung on uh, in a year. They overturned it in a year. Was it they overturned on techni- technicality yeah, or did they? Yeah. Uh, I can't remember. I, I read that too, yeah. but when I was looking into this, yeah, yeah. But whatever. The point that it, I mean that that's further evidence that right. that something. Uh, behind the scenes is going on with this dude. He was convicted um, in a, as a uh, racketeering attempting to uh, extort gambling operations at the uh, Rincon Reservation near San Diego. It was reversed on appeal, and he was released in 94, so he did a year. So uh, DeFranzo between, let's say, 1965 and his death did a, a year in prison. So... Um, do we want to digress for a second and give people a little bit of a uh, a quick synopsis of of his uh, his rise? Yeah, I mean, I, I think he's an interesting so he guy. Came, he came up as a burglar. I mean, he was a you know an expert thief in like the forties. Yeah, forties, and he, that's how he got his nickname, Johnny No Nose. Um, in nineteen forty nine, he was robbing a, a department store on Michigan Avenue, <laughs> and the police caught him in the act, and he jumped out of the window. Uh, to try oh, to yeah. uh, you know, avert arrest, and it took off a piece of his uh, between the 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 window and uh, took off a piece of his nose. And then, how does he become part of the outfit? So uh, he he is, uh, allegedly uh, made his bones uh, with a murder in 1952. I think the guy's name was Chuck Gross. Uh, got uh, sponsored by Jackie Cerrone. Oh, that's right. I've, I've heard from. Uh, multiple sources that Tony Accardo tapped him at a young age, uh, that Accardo in the 60s viewed DeFranzo as the future of the outfit. Oh, wow. That, that it was kind of decided upon between Accardo, Cerrone, uh, Sam Giancana, Joey Ayupa, who were the, the brain trust of that era and the outfit that... DeFranzo was was going to uh, be put on kind of a fast track. And was it because they knew he was pretty bright guy yes, and like yes. low key, right? Very low key, very sharp. Um, was a you know, a, a multi millionaire via legitimate means as well as being a uh, a very rich, uh, rich in the rackets earner. Yeah, yeah. So. It, he owned, you know, the, part of the, 
there was some interesting things to take away from that FBI file that if you're in, you know, if you're a mob geek, I mean, not for, you know, people that aren't into the, the, the nitty gritty, uh, the uh, the real granular stuff. Yeah. If you're into the real granular stuff, there's a lot of I I, I broke it down on my gangster report site. Yeah, it's uh, good. They, good they, article. Go, they go into his daily routine um, back in the '80s. You know who he was uh, hanging out with, who he was uh, uh, who he was having lunch with, and then they break down his, his some of his business portfolio. And yeah. There's the they think he might have owned like. 12 car dealers. It reminded me of the car dealers. Reminded me of the Detroit guys. Yeah. Didn't it? Doesn't it remind you of Zerilli and Toko? Yeah. Like how Jack Toko. Yeah. How, how, how well, him and Jack Toko were, were, yeah, were close was, friends. Well, yeah, I wanted to ask you about that at some point, but yeah, it reminds me of Zerilli and Toko. How even even in the 1960s. Well, not so much Zerilli. Are we talking about Joe Zerilli? Joe, not Joe. Yeah, no, yeah. no, no, no. That, well, that's part of the irony is how the. Right. The, the apple actually right. fell pretty far from the tree. But even in the 1960s, we knew Zerilli and Toko, right? Congress identified, had a whole list of all, I mean, shit they owned in California, yeah. Arizona, all, Florida, well, I, I have, all over I have the Jack Toko, I have a uh, large uh, portion of Jack Toko's FBI file, and they estimated that in, I think it was in like 1985 or 1990, I mean, it was 19, they estimated in 1990 that he had ownership interests in over 250 businesses spread across the country. Yeah. And some of them were like the most random things, like, yeah. like uh, janitorial services in yeah. Anderson, Indiana. <laughs> yeah. Like a paint chip fact, a paint, uh, uh, a paint factory in, in uh, uh, Reading, Pennsylvania. Is that to launder money or not necessarily? Both. I think both. Both. It could have been profitable, but yeah. then you can also right. launder launder money through it so defranzo is a white collar boss at least in his day he did work yeah but as, a, I, as, but a, I, as a in I the think, hierarchy at that point he was a white collar i guy. think he was one of these you know uh, rare breeds in in the underworld walking both lines that where yeah. he, he was a tough guy yeah and wasn't afraid to get his hands dirty with murder yeah um, wasn't afraid to not just uh, pull the trigger, but to arrange murder conspiracies. Yeah. Um, I don't think Jack Toko was doing a lot of that uh, in Detroit, um, whether uh, pulling triggers or arranging murder conspiracies. Right. Uh, I think Jack Toko did the bare minimum when it came to that kind of stuff and just wanted that to be handled outside of his purview. Remember um, the FBI file saying if just tell Jack you're being yeah if you want to get rid of, if you get if you want to get as the joke was from the informant if you want to get rid of Jack and his brother Tony who they call Ton if you want to get rid of Jack and Ton just tell him you're getting the heat and they'll run for the hills <laughs> yeah so I guess it's smart yeah. but um so so is there anything in but, those files yes, about but, Detroit uh no the DeFranza stuff but I have files from Toco that talk about him and uh, John DeFranzo's relationship and how uh, starting in, I believe, the 80s, maybe the 70s, but definitely in the 80s, uh, they would take a annual trip together to the Kentucky Derby. Oh, yeah. So they, they probably saw each other's kindred spirits, would you say, like the kind of boardroom gangster yeah. sort of thing? And plus Detroit, historically, the outfit have always had kind of a... Well, Tony Accardo was very close with Joe Zarelli. Right. So there's a, like a continuation, a yeah. tradition right. there. Um, and what? And about, then, in, you know, yeah, go ahead. There's the connection with what's over the last forty-five years, 
there's been a guy in Detroit, uh, com- you know, it's reputed. There's nothing's ever been convicted, but there's a guy in Detroit, uh, Anthony Lapiana, who has been, you know, from Chicago. And uh, there's the belief uh, from the FBI that he acts as a go-between. Oh, he's that he might still have those con- connections. Not might that he does. Oh, he does. And I know from you know everybody in Chicago knows. Yeah, knows Lapiana. Lapiana was uh, uh, brought up uh, around that Elmwood Park crew. Um, actually, took his one big federal uh, bus when he was uh, 24 years old out of Elmwood Park. Um, if you buy my book, Detroit True Crime Chronicles, you can see his mugshot from the Chicago FBI office in 1967. What was that? A, a, a truck a, a hijacking? Armed robbery or truck, something like that? Truck hijacking yeah, okay. that he was acquitted of. Yeah. So um, what's the word on the street in Chicago? So, I think there are a lot of people that believe what I'm, yeah, that's what I'm professing as a possibility. That's what I'm saying. So what, what are you—because what are, are you would think there would be some people in those max security prisons you're talking about that have would have a be pretty red assed about this, right? You mean what if you asked Jimmy Marcello right now? Yes. Or what if you would would have asked Joey Lombardo before he died? Correct. Yes. I'm guessing <laughs> they would have told you that they believed that he was a confidential informant. Wow. But yeah. Maybe not. Yeah. I, I would guess that Jimmy Marcello right now is is stewing. There's no re- by the way, there's no reason that Jimmy sh- Jimmy Marcello should be in Supermax. No, right. That goes back to like Larry Hoover and some of the other yeah. guys that aren't. And Joey Lombardo was a 90-year-old man <laughs> yeah. in Supermax. Right. Come on. Right. Yeah, no, I I agree. It's it's pretty inhumane excessive at the very least. So there there's word on the street. This isn't just this is there's been rumors for since Family Secrets dropped. Yeah, it seemed very conspicuous that he And, and then right. like I said there was for all those 11 years between the end of Family Secrets and DeFranzo's eventual uh, death, uh, there were these, you know, rampant rumors that there was a Family Secrets 2 that was about to hit and no knows who's going to be the, you know, the number one defendant. And, and that, that that was that was the, for the I guess the the uh the the pro no nos guys or yeah the guys that the didn't that, that didn't want to believe yeah. that maybe he was a confidential informant were saying he hasn't got off the hook he's gonna have he's gonna have, he he'll be the the first defendant in, in family secrets too and he's gonna have to account for it and he's gonna have to go to court and and the reason they didn't indict him was because they didn't want to uh you know muddle uh, uh get him involved um, I'm trying to um find the best way to describe the the, the thought that uh, if you indicted him with a bunch of people, he could have kind of got lost in the shuffle. Yeah, and that right. Family Secrets Two is just going to basically be him and his brother. Yeah, uh, and and the whole spotlight would be on them, and that again ne- never came to fruition. Um, Nick Calabrese has disappeared into the witness protection program. Has not been called to testify to any more cases. Hasn't he? And I I don't want to. I don't know. You tell me. You're the expert. Hasn't he insinuated that? He thinks DeFranzo. Yes, I mean he he found it very. He's telling bizarre. he's telling people. I told them Johnny DeFranzo did this, this, right. this, and this, and they never indicted him for it. Right. So then, and he has hasn't he come out publicly and said he? I don't know if he's said it publicly. I know he said it to the people that I know. Yeah, that that the only explanation he can think yeah. of is is what I've, you, I've also heard that he um, dips back in into Chicago occasionally. Calabrese, you mean like? And I'm, I don't think that's. I don't. I think in some ways that's par for the course. I think a lot of these guys 
go into witness protection, and they, there's, a, there's like a comfort factor that they develop, and in some ways they might get a little bit too confident. Well, he has and they that, feel like they can come back into town as long as they keep their head down, yeah. as long as they're, you know, not, you know, they can come in for a day or two and see some family. Yeah. Because after a couple of years, the federal, you know, people think that you're in witness protection, you're being handled by the government the rest of your life. The government gets you up and running and then they disappear and you don't hear from them or talk to them unless you have to testify for them. Right. But doesn't Calabrese, doesn't he run some kind of like Chicago tour? That's his like, uh, nephew. Oh, that's, that's his Frank nephew. Calabrese oh, yeah, Jr., you're, you're talking about the who was yeah, the yeah. person that actually yeah. uh, spurred the entire investigation right. by wiring up on his dad. Have you have you asked him about this? Because I know you've taught you've interviewed him, right? For your yeah, you know what? I don't remember if I uh, yeah if I've discussed with Frank uh, DeFranzo. But I think I think we can definitely get Frank on uh, on the OG. Yeah, yeah, I think we should. Um, I mean, we can ask him about a lot of things, and then um, we might we might be getting uh, Fosco. Yes, Joe Fosco might uh, uh, hopefully will come on, and he was one of the first people, if not the first person, to publicly put this theory out there. Yeah, it'd be interesting that, to uh, hear what he thinks. And you know, part of his theory is that he coordinated some quid pro quo with the government, like as he was becoming boss, where he told them that if you, I'm going to, I'm going to uh, give you a, 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 a number of people. And if you stay away from me and these people, um, I will provide you, you know, a, a certain amount of information in a, in a kind of like, you know, every couple of weeks I'll I'll feed you something as long as you yeah stay away from me and my people and uh, allow us to uh, and I heard that some of that negotiation might have involved in him saying I'm gonna stop outfit hits oh now he didn't but he definitely. The, the number of outfit murders on DeFranzo's watch, you know, pales in comparison to the number of hits that were on all of his predecessors' watches. Yeah, I mean, th- so there is a logic to this. I mean, we talked about another uh, shout-out to our, our episodes uh, with Noah Hurwitz in the El Chapo episode we did, which is also in our top ten now. Um, he also, I mean, he's not, he's, he's neutral. I mean, he's not going to justify it either way. That's not our position is reporters and social scientists but he's just saying there is a certain logic to the 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 if you if you if you buy in this theory that the dea behind the scenes would rather have el chapo in charge because at least one guy can keep the violence to a minimum ain't gonna get rid of it ain't gonna stop the drug trade but at least it's less bloodshed, less chaos if one guy's calling the shots. So there's a certain logic. I'm not justifying if the feds did this, but I'm just saying there's a certain logic to it that, like, there's the, a, the mean, devil I, we know. You know the kind of yeah. cliche, like, like devil like, we know better than, than the devil right, we don't. Know. Right, like, like he he's not a saint, but he 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 could keep things low so key. If we, we want to do the uh, the number disparity, uh, DeFranzo. Probably only about at max five six hits, um, if that during his tenure. During his tenure, yeah. Uh, Ronnie Jarrett, 
Tony the Hatchet um, were the two big ones in the uh, early 2000s. There's one from 2009 uh, of a uh, Hispanic uh, associate that was a, a mob uh, strong arm enforcer in Wrigleyville. Um, Norberto Velez, they call them uh, the bull or tank. That's three. Let me ask you about like uh, I, I don't I yes I don't uh, there might not even been five right. But what I was saying so let's just throw out the number disparity. Okay, so from let's say from ninety three to eighteen, five hits, and yeah. I think that actually might be I'm, there might only have been three or four, but let's just say five. Sure, between. 73 and 93. I know where you're going. 500. <laughs> right. Right. So it was a, it's a better deal for the feds yeah. from, their, from their perspective. Right. If you're just playing the numbers. Game. I mean, just, I mean, <laughs> it, it, things really, really tamped down in the 90s yeah. in terms of violence in Chicago. But if you look at uh, a, a murder timeline, let's say just in, you know, between 60 and 70, 70 and 80, and 80 and 90, I mean, those decades, you're talking hundreds of mob murders, hundreds. Let me ask you, I, I know we're getting short on time here, but I'm interested in the, the criminology of this. So, And I'm, I'm fascinated by this idea of each FBI field office has its own institution, institutional history, and different motives for what they do based on regional things, political stuff, whatever. Um, and it seems to me like Chicago fits into this similar mold as Detroit, where it would seem like more important to the FBI now with all the violence going on in the inner city Chicago and the cartel stuff there and uh, the, the municipal per- corruption and things like that, doesn't it sort of make sense to me that they would shift priorities from, well, from, spe- from the Italians to like, especially if uh, you've had such a uh, downtick yes, in violence. Right. And it's not just murder. There's been a downtick in all mob related violence. Yeah. So it's become a point now where, the guys that run the mob know that if, you know, you're in debt to them, it's better for everybody if they just cut you off. Yeah, right. Yeah, right. You just you don't come around here anymore. Yeah. You're not welcome. Yeah. You're you're ostracized you're, more yeah. than uh, we're, we're not taking your violence. we're not taking your bets anymore. Right. Yeah. Right. So, it's th- there's a certain logic to it if if they feel like having a guy like this as a CI and help build cases against other high priority cases they could justify it by saying the Italians, we're not saying they're good guys, but right. <laughs> in the big scheme of things, they're less dangerous, less and I don't think, lethal, less whatever. I don't think DeFranzo played that whatever. much of a role in the more recent Chicago mob hits. And when I say recent, I, it ain't that recent. Like yeah. Ronnie Jarrett was 99, Chiaramonte was 01. Yeah. Uh, so, uh, yeah. Velez was, was 09. I think those were all uh, ordered by street bosses or acting bosses. Uh, I'm sorry, Anthony, we forgot the biggest one, actually. So I I apologize. Uh, I had a a big blind spot there. Uh, The biggest mob uh, murder uh, of of DeFranzo's reign was uh, little Tony uh, Zizzo, who disappeared in 06 and has yet to be found. So... uh, Zizzo, who was the underboss, uh, Anthony, uh, Tony the Hatchet, Chiaramonte, who was kind of a crew boss, 
Ronnie Jarrett, who was a non-Italian but very high-ranking non-Italian, um, and uh, Noberto Velez, who was a very low-ranking uh, muscle guy uh, on the north side. But uh, most of those guys weren't like jabronis. They're, those are like some pretty significant dudes. Outside were, of Velez. Yeah, yeah, that's interesting. Yeah. The, the, reason, the reason why I'm going with this, like the field office well, well, But I just want to yeah. further clarify. I, yeah. I heard that DeFranzo might have signed off on uh, the Hatchet, Tony the Hatchet Cheramonti, but I don't think he really had m- much of anything to do with, uh, I know Jarrett was related to a Johnny Apes Monteleone thing. Johnny Apes was the acting boss of the mob at that time. Zizzo, it was a beef between him and uh, Fat Mike Sarno, who was the acting boss at that time. So I think DeFranzo was smart enough to, you know, and he learned this from Ricardo, you know, uh, insulate yourself as much as possible. Um, If you don't need to know, don't know. So even though he was the godfather in title, I wouldn't be shocked if he, he might not have even known that those murders were going to take place. So the, we're, what I was thinking with this, uh, the as a, I just want to say, as opposed to like a Gotti or uh, yeah, uh, who, who as the boss, sure, made sure that nothing when it, nothing got done on the violence front without a yeah. direct say so from Scarfo him. too. Yeah. There's the other right. guys like that. But I'm they, I'm, they uh, micro they micromanage the violence. Yeah, I'm thinking about this argument that well, the reason why DeFranzo wasn't indicted is because there there's nothing to indict him for because there's hardly a mafia left in Chicago. <laughs> you know, I mean, this is a, this is an argument we revisit. We we talked we're revisiting now. We talked about in our you know today's American crime family. So the, the reason why I bring that up is because the argument that well, they didn't prosecute him because he's a confidential informant could make sense if you subscribe to this theory that each field office has its own prerogatives and whatever, as opposed to the argument that, well, they don't indict these guys in Chicago and Detroit because they don't. There's no reason. Right. There's no reason. To. <laughs> how, what, how do you respond to Well, to I mean, I go, you know, there are so many ripple effects in this world that as a reporter sometimes they, they can just – Unfortunately, they can go over your head because sometimes you can get so zeroed in on what you're reporting on, you forget that people are are, are multidimensional, yes, human beings, and and uh, all of these guys that that sometimes we portray as boogeymen uh, are flesh and blood, and they have people that love them, and they have uh, you know their daughter didn't see them as the boogeyman; they might have been, you know. The best uh, a boogeyman might also be the best dad in the world. Uh, not always, but in some, <laughs> so the point I'm making is when I when I think about this, I, I I immediately go and I think about Mickey Spilatro's daughters, Tony Spilatro's kids. They're all legit people. You know, they're not into the underworld. And I mean, are are you think they're okay with with John DeFranzo never having to answer for not just taking part in their father's murder but arranging the entire thing directing the whole thing uh i i would guess that that it it's uh it's something that's very bothersome to them so that's when i'm talking about ripple effects like it doesn't just affect 
the FBI agent or the reporter or the guy that's arrested, it, it, there are, you know, there's dominoes here that fall. And, and I know in terms of the Spilatro family, I mean, it, 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 <laughs> Tony Spilatro wasn't necessarily, you know, there are a lot of, there were a lot of mob murders in history that were victims or would be more appropriate to shed tears for than Tony Spilatro because uh, the guy was a lunatic. But again, he still has a family. And Mickey Spilatro would have never been murdered if it wouldn't have been. That was kind of wrong place, wrong time. You know, he brought his brother. They thought they had to like knock his brother off because they, had, they wanted to knock him off and they were worried how his brother would react. Yeah, because so, his brother was low. His brother low, was a low, low, low rank guy. Yeah, yeah, yeah. If 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 they had whacked Tony, his brother would not have been in a position to seek retaliation. Well, people thought. I mean, it, unless I guess, I guess people thought that he was he had a temper and that he might have. Yeah, as like which is why cannon. they included him, and they also wanted uh, Mickey being there to lower Tony's guard because Tony would have believed that they're going to kill me. They're not going to kill me with my brother. Yeah, when in reality they did. Right. Um. And they told uh, both of them that it was a a, a ritual that uh, Mickey was getting his button and Tony was getting uh, promoted to capo, and they knew. I mean, if you went to the tri- uh, if you went to the trial or you read my book or uh, you've you've followed it, you you listened to the testimony of the Spilatros family, they left that day knowing that there was a good chance they weren't coming home. Right. Uh, they left all their jewelry and. Uh, they knew it was a 50-50. Right, which you don't get that sense from the movie, you know. Oh, no, right. They, the, right. He's, he seems pretty confident yeah. as, as usual. So. Um, in the movie, it takes place in a, a cornfield. Yeah, right. Which is. Well, they just took that because that's where they were found. Yeah, and it's pretty effective. They were found in a cornfield. It, it has a good cinematic. Yeah. <laughs> but huh. they were, they were most likely, they were buried alive, uh, like you saw in the film. So you don't think that he was an informant at that point. Do you in the eighties? Because that brings up a whole nother can yeah. of worms about like Bolger and right, Scarpa. Right. Like, are they committing acts of violence while on the clock? Well, so to you speak. know what, what Fosco uh, theorizes um, is that that relationship uh, did not form until after uh, the Spilato brothers' murders. Um, so. I'll be interested when in, we can get Joe on and talk to him about it or yeah. get Frank Calabrese Jr. on and talk to him about it. But, uh, yeah, then that, right, that opens a whole, uh, and then we can go down a whole other rabbit hole about, you know, uh, yeah, the FBI, the federal right. government co-signing mob murders. Yeah, right. Yeah, that was Like, in real, in real time. Yeah, of course. Right. Yeah. And we know that they don't have the best record. Yeah. <laughs> with some of these other but, cases. You know, as we close, I mean, I just, you know, John DeFranzo, you know, if they're, you know, if if you're gonna uh, take a list or or uh, do do a chart of of mobsters, big time mobsters that are winners and losers, this guy was a big, 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 big fucking winner. See, yeah. like this guy, him and Jack Tolko are, are similar in this that when they died, they didn't die gangster rich. They, yeah, they died corporate wealthy. Right. Yeah, I mean, I, I'm not talking about a couple million bucks. They yeah. they died worth tens of millions, if not hundreds of millions of dollars. Yeah, and and that's uh, you know that's not uh, that's not your everyday 
uh, mob boss. As much as the Godfather uh, movies and stuff like that want make you believe that, that there's this, you know, uh, everything's so glamorous. It's not always so glamorous. There are mob bosses uh, that 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 live uh, <laughs> paycheck to paycheck. Well, for all yeah, it, and I mean, it's an interesting contrast in leadership because guys like Toko and DeFranzo actually were taking the Michael Corleone approach, which is keep on in, keep on investing in legitimate businesses, infiltrate legitimate businesses, and that's where you're going to make your real money. Whereas, like, you know, guys like Gotti and Scarfo were basically still well, street and, and guys, say, even you know, as they were the boss. Yeah, they were in like, St. Louis, <laughs> uh, Mike Trupiano, who was actually a Detroiter that got uh, uh, banished to St. Louis, and then through Jack Toko... Uh, and uh, Tony Accardo got promoted to the boss of the St. Louis Mafia in the '80s. He took a bus. He was running. He was running like a card game. <laughs> he was running like a freaking right. like a gin rummy game in the back of a uh, of his uh, in the back of his uh, car dealership. Oh, dealership, yeah. And it's in like in, with, for not not like a high roller game, right? Like, right. Right. Not the executive and, and game. And he and he was he was running it. Yeah. He was the boss of the St. Louis Mafia, and he's running a card game. Yeah. Yeah, I mean, it seems like the uh, the guys who really accumulated a lot of wealth were the legit guys. And the only guy, the only one off the top of my head it backfired on, and that was because of some street politics, was Castellano. Right. But that was a New York unique kind of— Well, that was— If Castellano frankly, had been was in, cost, yeah. in another city, he probably would have lasted. And he was his own worst enemy. Yeah, yeah, right. He alienated people. He alienated people. himself. Uh, right. And, and you can't— you can't look down on your soldiers. No, you can't. I mean, you can be, you know, you can be insulated from them. Sure. And and be a smart criminal. Yeah. But you can't. You can't uh, condescend. You, you can't them. condescend them. Yeah. I mean, he almost, he almost had this thing where like uh, he wasn't even part of that right. world. Right. I, I want the money. Right. But <laughs> I don't want to get my hands dirty with any guys. All right. Anything else you want to update us on, Bernie? Before we sign off, you. I know you were in Vegas. You weren't with our Purple Gang episode. We we gave you a shout out. We know you were in Vegas. Yeah, I was doing a Black Mafia family program at the Mob Museum. If uh, anybody's in Las Vegas, please go check out the Mob Museum. Uh, it's one of the biggest attractions now uh, in that city. It's been around for a little over a decade now. It's it's growing leaps and bounds every day. Uh, just really, really cool programming there, cool exhibits. I'm on the board of directors. We're going to get Jimmy on the board of directors before it's oh, all Oh, yeah, I like the sound Before it's that. all said and done. <laughs> um, I do a program or two there a year. Uh, you know, they, they you know sell tickets and they uh, have a big auditorium and um, shut the place down at night. And, and It's pretty fun. Right. Give you, give you the whole uh, red carpet treatment. Well, one of these days I want us to... To be able to yeah, do go a there couple of episodes, yeah, there, record yeah. a. They probably have something that could set up a studio there for. Well, they're us. actually building a whole kind of podcast division, and well, might be able to find some synergy with. Yeah, them. yeah, for sure. All right, and uh, you know, I'll, I'll kind of maybe tease something we're going to uh, talk about in the future, but it, we're, this whole episode was about theorizing uh, on whether or not this very high-profile gangster was a was an informant. But uh, what, what one high-profile gangster that we know for sure was an informant uh, was gunned down yeah. this week yeah, in New news. York City. Uh, Alberto Martinez, known as Alpo, uh, 
the, one of the the true heavyweights of the dope game in the 1980s in Harlem. Um, w- w- you know, was a street legend, was iconic. Eventually, uh, became a cooperator. Went to the witness protection program. They did a movie about him called Paid in Full, which is one of the I might be yeah. one of the more underrated uh, urban gangster flicks uh, with uh, Mackay Pfeiffer and Wood Harris. Uh, who's actually in the Black Mafia Family Show? Shout out to Harris as Black Pat and uh, Alpo. Uh, uh, we were talking about, in addition to, to Johnny Nono's, we were talking about how Nick Calvary sometimes comes back into Chicago. Allegedly, yes. uh, I've heard that he's been seen a couple times over the last 10, 12 years. Uh, well, Alpo uh, was back uh, in New York. Yeah, and there was um, the last known uh, kind of. His last known placement in witness protection was in Maine. So people don't know if he was living in Maine now and had uh, come down to New York to visit or had maybe was moved somewhere in witness protection. But he was uh, back visiting uh, in the old neighborhood and uh, got gunned down. And the you know, streets don't uh, streets don't forget. Streets don't love you back. They don't forget. And, uh, you know, unfortunately, there are still situations where something that happened a long, long time ago uh, is coming back to bite you or coming back to bite someone because uh, they weren't watching their six. No, I agree. Let's let's do that maybe next week. We'll see if we can get... But, yeah, I mean, this even reminds me of uh, Canada. I mean, I think I think a lot of what's happening in Canada now, at least some of it... Chicken's coming home go, to ...goes roost. back to the 70s. Yeah, that's oh, how no, far it back, does. That's how far of back it goes. Of course it does. Of course it does. It goes back to people, the, you know... People are very patient waiting yeah. for them to get there. Revenge is a dish best served cold. <laughs> right. So people are patient in this world. And that's why, you know, God bless White Boy Rick. I, I love that he's out here living his best life. Um, but part of me still worries for him because he's so back in the public eye now and uh, is being is so accessible uh, I just I know that uh, he's taking all the precautions that, that, that he feels like he needs to take but I still feel like there's some risk out there and I, I, I want the best for him and sometimes I get a little worried when I see him being uh, kind of uh, so public with where he is and what he's doing yeah you gotta be careful out there so well thanks everyone for listening please follow us on social media Twitter, Facebook, Instagram, TikTok. Every time you like us, it helps spread the word. Our metrics keep on going up. So we appreciate your support. I'm Jimmy Bucciolato and Scott Bernstein, Original Gangsters Podcast. See you next week. Out. Oh.